Hello, I'm Tom Harper. And I'm Diana Thomas. Welcome to That Wilbur Smith Show. A podcast about the historical, geographical, natural and human background to the world of Wilbur Smith. Africa has many moods, many faces, and I love them all. Here, before us, she put on one of her more enchanting displays. We were silent and engrossed for a long time. Suddenly, I felt Sally stir against me, half rising. Ready, I asked her, rising with her. Ben! Her hand closed on my wrist with surprising strength. She was shaking my arm. Ben! Ben! What is it, Sal? I was seized with dread that her earlier mood had returned. Look, Ben, look! Her voice was choked with emotion. What is it, Sal? Are you all right? With one hand, she was shaking my arm. With the other, she was pointing down at the plane below us. Look, Ben, there it is! Sally, I put both arms around her to restrain her. Easy, my dear. Just sit down quietly. Don't be a fool, Ben. I'm perfectly all right. Just look down there. Still holding her securely, I did as she asked. I stared and saw nothing. Do you see it, Ben? No. And then, like the face in a picture puzzle, it was there. It was there as it should have been from the beginning. Can you see it? Sally was trembling. Tell me you can see it too, Ben. Tell me I'm not imagining it. Yes, I mumbled, still not certain. Yes, I think. It's the city of the moon, Ben. The ghost city of the Bushmen. It's our lost city, Ben. It is. It must be. And those dramatic words come from Wilbur Smith's 1972 book, The Sunbird, which I confess I had somehow missed in all my many years of reading his books, but which turns out to be completely engrossing. And it's a two-part story in that uh, Tom was there speaking in the voice of the narrator of the first part, Benjamin Kazin, a um, museum director and archaeologist who is also a hunchback. Um, and this is, I think, fascinating. One of the many fascinating things about the book. So, um, Tom, perhaps you can set up what it is that um, Ben and his um, the girl he loves above all, Sally Bonata, are looking at. Yes. So this is a story, uh, this sunbird, built around the quest for the legendary city of Ophir, uh, which is first mentioned in the Bible as a sort of legendary city of gold. Um, and it's the revolves very much around these three characters, Ben and Sally, who you've already mentioned, and then their friend and sponsor, uh, Lauren Stuyvesant, who go into the wilds of Botswana searching for this mythical city because they think they've seen some photographs or some photographs have come back which show the outlines of what might be this lost city. And the story is very much their quest to find this city and the secrets it holds and the secrets of its destruction. The thing about this book, I now realise, is that it's actually an incredibly pivotal book, both for Wilbur as a, as a writer, in the sense of it brought him to an entire new audience, 
and a new way of writing, but also because for all sorts of reasons, it actually foreshadows books that we've been talking about, which are the Egyptian series, the Taita books, um, because one of the fascinating things that, about the book is that it's actually two stories in one. You have one kind of archaeological thriller about this, this discovery and what happens as a consequence of that discovery. And then the second half of the book, which we'll be talking about in a second episode, is, um, is about the story of the city itself and how it came to be in the state in which it is found, which is to say, utterly destroyed. Um, and I don't know about you, Tom, but I mean, I just found it riveting. Yeah, no, like you, this was one that had passed me by um, until our producer Chris suggested it. And I was absolutely hooked, um, genuinely, uh, reading through it as we as we prepped this episode. Um, and the other thing I thought was very interesting was, as you say, it's, it's a novel of two parts. And... I think it sort of captures both sides of Wilbur's writing because actually until this is his seventh novel, I think written in 1971. And to this point, he'd published six books, uh, two Courtney books and four contemporary thrillers, I think. Yeah. And so this is him really fusing those two sides of his, uh, of his, of his career, the historical novels and the contemporary thrillers. Um, but then actually adding a third element, which is sort of this very ancient history, which, as you say, he'd go on to explore in the River God series. So it's really the the, the fulcrum of, of, of what he had done and everything he was going to do next, I think. Yeah, because one one kind of forgets, or it's easy to forget, that because that, he's so well known for these great big historical epics, that for aside, aside from Where the Lion Feeds, um, um, most of his books, you say, had been contemporary thrillers. They'd been punchy, relatively short books, easily filmable and indeed often film, filmed. Yeah. Um, Gold, Shout of the Devil, these sort of, you know, set in contemporary South Africa or Southern Africa. Um, I mean, I have to say that this is one of those books, this comes back to the old sensitivity reader thing. Yeah. The first half of the book is written in the voice of a guy from 19, from kind of the 60s, 70s turn. Yeah. So it is safe to say that your contemporary sensitivity reader would be just having to go and have a quick lie down about every five pages because, because the attitudes expressed are entirely normal for the period. Nobody in 1971 or 72 would have thought there was anything odd about the way in which um, Ben Kazin talks about women or people of other races or not, by the way, that is overtly sexist or racist. The, the, uh, homosexuals also don't feature well. Indeed, there's a bit about you know, there's a bit about hairdressers, which I think, in a con contemporary context, we felt to be very inappropriate. Um, but I think it's important to bear in mind that a you're, that he's writing through a character. This is the character speaking. And yeah. I, so one of the frustrating things from an author is like when you speak through a character, you're not talking. The character is talking, so that mm. the way they talk is part of that character. Hello, yeah, and yes, and that the, 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 his attitudes. You know, he goes girl spotting on the King's Road. Yes, um, I think I think I think it'd be considered almost a shooting offence just to even admit that a man liked going to look at girls, or that they were indeed girls rather than independent women. But again, 
completely normal at the time. So with that caveat to one side. Yeah, there's another actually uh, on that vein, uh, and this is something I think I'm hoping we'll discuss later in the show, but there are people online who have accused this novel of being a sort of justification apologia for white rule uh, over Africans. Um, and again, I think that's not entirely straightforward, but I think that's something we can dig into um, later later in the show. I think, there's, I, I think what there certainly is, whether consciously or unconsciously, in both stories, white colonialists are either threatened by or actually overthrown by native populations, indigenous peoples. So I think the other thing, yeah, well, I think the other, th the other piece of context to this novel is when it was written, which, as I say, is sort of, I think, written 70, 71, and came out in 72, yeah. And the first thing that's really surprised me was uh, realizing that it mostly takes place in modern day Botswana. Yeah. Botswana is a very, very new construct. It only gains independence, I think, in 1965 or 66. Um, so, as a country, it's only four or five years old uh, at this point. Uh, and the the other country where it, um, things happen is in um, Zimbabwe. Yep. Um, or, but at the time, of course, Zimbabwe is Rhodesia. Uh, in 1965, uh, Ian D. Smith has made a unilateral declaration of independence yep. because Britain won't allow the colony of Rhodesia to be independent unless they have majority rule, i.e. Uh, universal suffrage for blacks and whites. Um, and rather than uh, accede to this horror, uh, he and his kind of white settler regime uh, declare independence and become a sort of international pariah state yes. for what turns out to be 15 years, um, from 65 to 80. Um, so we're bang in the middle of this. So countries that we now think of as being you know, settled geographical entities at the time of writing are actually either new or don't even exist yet. And there is this very fierce bush war going on uh, in in Rhodesia, uh, which becomes uh, which, which becomes part of the plot. So I think this is a book which really you have to understand the context in which it's happening because it, it is a world that's not like the world we know now. Quite apart from the, uh, the attitudes, and and of course, South, I mean South Africa at this point um, is in the in the sort of depths of apartheid. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so for example, the fact that um, that. Ben, one of his closest colleagues, Timothy Magaba, is black and is treated kind of as an equal, pretty much. Yeah. That that in itself to a South African audience of the time would have been seen by liberals as a very liberal thing and by pro-apartheid people as a very shocking thing. So it would probably been enough to get the book book banned by the apartheid regime, I'd have thought. Quite. Um it's actually a book he writes about himself as much as any other book in, in on Leopard Rock, his autobiography. I mean, so it was it was very much he he writes about it very much as as a book that is really central to to his development as a writer. Give me one moment and I will be able to tell you exactly what he says about it. So he He's writing now about a point during the creation of the book. So as, as Tom says, we're, we're kind of in 1971. And he says, 
The manuscript in front of me was half complete, but already much bigger than the thrillers that had consumed each of my last few years. Shout at the Devil, Goldmine and the Diamond Hunters had all been blistering reads, highly charged, with adrenaline-driven plots like the best adventure stories, and they'd been written with an expenditure of enormous emotional energy. The Sunbird was to be something different. The challenge was daunting, but there was no room in my life for artistic ennui, indulgences like writer's block, or appealing to the elusive muse of inspiration. My muse was my father's voice in my ear saying, get on with it, Wilbur, you lazy son of a bitch. There's work to be done. The Sunbird was going to be my most ambitious, richly imagined and unfilmable work to date. The germ of the idea had come from my experience as a boy in Great Zimbabwe and what the ghosts were telling me as they drifted through the ruin. I was developing my own theory about the history of the place and imagining my own lost city of Offet, founded by castaway Carthaginians who had travelled south after suffering the depredations of the Romans in North Africa. They would come through Gibraltar, down an ancient river system now dried up, until they reached the mighty Nile, the birthplace of civilization. I imagined that they'd cross the Namib, as I would one day, and in Botswana found, founded a fantastic civilization all of it to be undone by a villainous king and rediscovered millennia later. The novel would be a two-part story set millennia apart and it'd be richer than anything I had written before. So there he is in the midst of having this kind of sea change. And when he's talking about Great Zimbabwe, that's the city, the city which actually exists. It's in the country of Zimbabwe, which is an astonishing stone ruin one never thinks of africa as having massive um well sub-saharan africa as having massive stone ruins as one might do of other civilizations but great zimbabwe is as impressive as any you know inca or aztec or other ruin that you might find um yeah i was trying to describe it to my wife the other day and i was saying it's sort of like the african machu picchu yes very good comparison um, yes and, exactly. uh, and in fact, we've in a in a forthcoming episode, we're actually going to have an expert on uh, Great Zimbabwe come and talk to us about it. Uh, so, listeners who are intrigued, uh, stay tuned. Because it's also Great Zimbabwe is also appears in a book we've also discussed previously, A Falcon Flies, um, yeah. where it's stumbled upon um, by the Ballantines, and um, and indeed the falcon that flies is is a stone falcon, which again, is a real thing that really was in Zimbabwe and which is it features on the current crest of Zimbabwe, I believe, and, yes. and is also mentioned in this book. So, yes, and, and, and birds are very interesting here because the, obviously a falcon flies is named after the falcons uh, in Zimbabwe. The sunbird, there's lots of different sunbirds in this novel. Um, and one of the things that I realized was in the first half of the book, the sunbirds are, there is an actual bird called a sunbird, which was, I think Wilbur says it's his favorite bird. Yes. Um, and, and he named his house in Cape Town after it. Um, but in the ancient story, the birds they called sunbirds are actually vultures. Yes, because um, they fly up towards the sun. Because they fly up towards the sun, exactly. And the hero of the second part is also known as sunbird, isn't he, by... By his, by his king. Yeah. He is, by, by his friend, yes. And the hero of the narrator of the first part, Ben uh, Kazim, 
is also known as the Sunbird by the uh, Bushman tribesmen who he's befriended. Good point. So there are sunbirds uh, everywhere uh, in, in this novel. That's one, one of the things about the book that's also interesting is that each half of the book is in character terms, a mirror image of the other. Yeah. So, And I think maybe we can talk about that more when we get to the second half. But indeed. Um, but now I think we should really get down to the straightforward telling of the story of how it is that yeah that the that this the, the the point the point you describe comes sort of 80 or 90 pages into the book but it begins with some photographs yes and it begins with two characters i think the, the extraordinary thing about this book is it's absolutely epic um and vast on a scale i think wilbur hadn't attempted previously but would obviously become very well known for yeah. but actually it really the first the first half of the, the, the contemporary thriller part of it and it revolves really around three characters maybe three and a half three and a half characters four i think if we're going to be if we're going to be uh, well we can, we can we can debate that the the, the, fir the first half of the story the contemporary thriller part probably worth saying four given that the fourth one is the black one um but he gets so little page time i'm I'm going to stick. I'm, yeah, I'm just, just nervous about, you know. I, I, okay. I mean. He's quite central, though. He's central because also he repeats as, he repeats in the. I, I honestly don't think you could say that Timothy McGaber is a major character in the first yeah, half yeah. because he pops up twice for like, but his the things he does have no bearing on the plot, really. I guess. So this, the, the first half of the story, the contemporary thriller part, really revolves around three main characters maybe three and a half um and it is a, as we um discover it's it becomes a sort of love triangle but love in different forms so there are two people whom our hero ben kazin loves um in different ways and one is uh, sally his assistant his beautiful assistant and the other is this guy uh lauren Sturvesant, who is a classic south african industrialist mining magnate millionaire uh, maybe billionaire um who in current terms he'd be a billionaire wouldn't he in current terms he'd definitely be a billionaire um who runs this great south african conglomerate and befriended ben uh and took him under his wing at michael house school which i thought was an interesting detail yes. uh where uh, the the Eaton of Africa, where um, Ben was horribly bullied uh, on account of his his hunchback. Wilbur's school, and indeed, yes, as you can see, Diana, it's Wilbur's Wilbur's school. Michael House is Wilbur's school. Yeah, exactly. So again, quite um, some quite close identification um, there between between Wilbur and Ben, and it's interesting. We were talking in the episode on Testament about how Taitu was one of the very few characters that Wilbur wrote in the first person. Uh, and really was someone who um, Wilbur clearly, I think, is on record as saying he identified with him most of all, of all his characters. And here we have another of these rare first-person characters. Um, and again, he is, um, he's, he's not the kind of classic hero. He's, he's got this um, physical um, disability or deformity, whatever uh, the correct term is. Um, he's described as having a high laugh, a stutter, um, so he's in some ways he's not a kind of classic man in the way that Lauren absolutely is. Lauren is tall, he's broad, he's got you know a golden aura around him, and the relationship between them kind of reminded me a bit of um, sort of the talented Mr. Ripley, where you've got 
not obviously Ben not being a psychopath, but you've got Dickie Greenleaf, the absolute golden child, the son of of tremendous wealth, um, and uh, and then Ripley, who's sort of like his little his little pet in some ways. Yeah, I mean, the, the, uh, and and of course within the within the Wilbur universe, it's it's Taita and the gorgeous golden haired General Tannis. Yeah, and I, 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 you know, one comes back to this fascinating thing that, that I mean, and Wilbur hated his time at Michael House. I think I'm yeah. right saying, and as did as did Ben, and Ben is a really interesting character because because he's described as being sort of somewhat simian because he has long arms and long legs and he can move very quickly and he's very strong and very very hairy. Yeah, and he's, he describes himself as simian. Yeah, and and then he has this hunch, and and he can play the guitar and sing and um, very beautifully. I think that's, that's quite important. It's, it's not. Yes, that's yeah. what I was going to say, and that's a, that's a sort of tighter thing, and that that then also echoes into the second half of the book. But it's just fascinating, and he's Jewish, which again puts him in a in a minority situation. Yeah. So it's just fascinating that once again, the character that he feels drawn to speak and speak through has is is a character who who has overcoming tremendous weaknesses rather than someone who is born to to great privilege and 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 just as well has things given to them on a plate um and i, I just found that absolutely fascinating when i was reading it why would you there's no reason really why this story needs the first half of the story needs to be told in the first person I mean, it helps in certain respects, but but you could have told it just as well um, in the third person. But no, he at this point when he's writing a book, which he says is very very personal to him. So I guess that's the answer: is that is that it's driven by something which is personal. He had visited Great Zimbabwe as a child and been and 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 found it a very kind of fascinating but slightly spooky experience. So it's a deeply, deeply personal story. And then he writes it. Again, you could just have a bookish, bespectacled, whatever, but no, you're gonna give you're gonna make this hero, you're gonna really pile disadvantages down upon him. Mm. Um and and it's just fascinating that that's where he would I mean the thing that I, the thing I did find about about him was and I don't think I'm giving away too much because I think any reader will feel the same thing. So he feels he 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 and Sally, who's very beautiful, he's always thought he's always been sort of carrying a tremendous torch for her, again like Taita does for for the beautiful Lustris, and always thought that she was completely out of his reach because of his disability. Yes. And then, to his absolute delight, after they've discovered as they as they are discovering the city. They fall in, or he he falls in love with her, but but it's consummated. Yeah, she comes to his bed, um, slightly fortuitously, and it's not entirely clear what's motivated her. I think. Well, the the other thing is that it's fairly apparent, I would say, from like very very early on, that that she is that something is going on. Yes. That he is just utterly failing to miss yeah <laughs> failing to spot rather yeah he's he's utterly missing and failing to spot and you're and you're you're sort of it's funny thing you sort of find yourself not quite shouting the books if it was if it was on tv you'd be shouting at the teddy saying, for goodness sakes man look isn't it obvious look at the two of them together you know yeah so anyway we should probably get back to the actual 
actual plot of the book, which begins with um, Ben pouring over some pictures taken by an airplane um, hired by Laren. And they've, and as they're actually, the, the plane is actually looking for mineral deposits and various other things. It's not looking for an archaeological thing at all, but by happy accident, among the pictures that are taken are some which appear to show the outlines on the ground of old buildings and walls and a possible settlement. And this, and, and Ben is, has got this theory he's been trying to prove about um, the settlement of that part of Southern Africa by people from uh, the contemporary Middle East. Um, the, the Phoenicians had started in Tyre, then they moved to the city of Carthage. And when the city of Carthage was utterly destroyed by the Romans, um, the book suggests that a few Phoenicians escaped and came down to Southern Africa. And so they set off to see, Lauren, as with his usual limitless resources, mounts this great big expedition to go and find this city. Um, although the African workers who go with them are extremely reluctant, it rapidly becomes clear to go near this site. And they come to the site and they can't find anything and they can't find anything. And then when everybody else has more or less given up and gone away, Ben and um, uh, Sally, much like um, the discovery of the city in A Falcon Flies, are led to their first major discovery by following, as were animals and birds, into the depths of the rock. It, it very much echoes A Falcon Flies because in A Falcon Flies, it's the honey eater um, bird that, yes. that leads them to the city. And the little Lorax in the fluffy bunny, that has a role to play as well, I think. That, that, that's, that leads them up the cliff earlier on, I think. Uh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But yeah, it's, it's, it's the honey eater bird that leads them, uh, or the honey seeker, whatever it was called, uh, leads them to the city. Honey seeker. Yeah. Yes, right. Little, little seeker of sweetness, isn't it? And here it's the bees. And this is, again is one of these wonderful Wilbur details that... Um, I think most writers would never occur to. What finally makes the penny drop in Ben's mind is he sees the bees and he realizes, and then he realizes that there are birds and there are animals and there must be a source of water somewhere, even though there's allegedly no water around for 200 miles. And he's, the sun catches the stream of pollen coming off the bees um, as they fly into their nest. And he's able to use that kind of golden stream of dust to, to work out where the bees are going. I am just a bee, little bee detail. I, the things you learn from Wilbur Smith books. There are the birds, there are the bees that the bees that come back to the nest <clears throat> with pollen. And then there are the bees that come back to the nest with water. Yes. I hadn't realized that yes. there are water carry. I knew obviously I knew that bees carry pollen. That's how plants are fertilized. I had no idea that there were some bees who are water bees and go and get water for the hive. Yeah, yeah. Uh, no, I, was, I was saying I, one of those. And there's the, the description of the bees going into the hive with the pollen kind of sticky on their back yes. legs. And again, it's one yes. of these suddenly Wilbur in kind of full on David Attenborough mode. Um, Absolutely. But they then use this insight. And uh, as you say, they find a cleft in the rock, which hitherto has been invisible to them. And they go inside and they find this cave and in the cave is, well, there are a couple of extraordinary things. One is a emerald green pool of water, which is what mm. they've been um, giving the bees and the other animals their, their water, which uh, on subsequent investigation turns out to be almost bottomless. And the other thing is that the cave is filled with Bushman cave paintings, 
most strikingly a picture of a great white man dressed as a warrior um, with an enormous erect penis with an enormous erection just just to be quite clear that he is a powerful man um and ben and sally are absolutely convinced that this is some kind of non-native african um, someone someone from the north who has come down and is evident evidence for ben's theory of these kind of phoenicians who've come down to the area i mean at this point it's worth saying and it's important to say that at the time it's clear that it was it, this is already a very contentious issue at the time that um the notion that a civilization in africa required non-african people to create it is understandably highly controversial and politically charged and and would nowadays i think be considered or we'll talk about this i'm sure when we do on that episode about the great zimbabwe but i mean it's nowadays absolutely dismissed on both historical and political grounds yeah but ben is absolutely convinced of it and and i think wilbur is too although it's important to say this is a work of fiction i mean it's a fantasy book it's not it's not intended to be as yeah. an academic treatise it's intended to be a work of fiction so if in a work of fiction if you want to have a city that's created by people from from a trading port on the eastern mediterranean or people from mars or you know like chariots of the gods or something that's a writer's prerogative yeah but but the other thing is that he compares this huge supposedly white figure um in the book that Ben and Sally they talk about it and they compare it with the white lady of the Brandberg which is an actual painting and i was curious about this if you go and look at pictures of the white lady of the Brandberg which is exactly what i did i'm sure you would <laughs> i mean she's not a white lady there's white in the painting there are yeah. paint there are animals that are white there are little figures that are white and her legs are white and part of her head but not her not the main skin of her face is white but her her torso is is black yeah so i mean that's clearly the white the white legging strike me as something i don't know this struck me as a part of her costume more than anything else yeah i think one of the theories is that she was smeared with white clay which i think you still see in some african rituals yes you do you do oh, uh, which strikes me as eminently plausible yeah but what 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 i don't see in that picture apart from just the physique and the way she runs and everything i don't in any respect see a white lady no i see i mean and so um i just mentioned that in passing because as far as i'm aware um and i have actually for other reasons done quite, quite a study of 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 native art and you don't see very many white well you don't see white figures at all yeah anyway uh so coming back to the story they found this cave with the with the pool and the paintings and they get Lauren back there to have a look at it and a couple of odd things happen both Lauren and Sally start to have slightly kind of weird eerie moments so Lauren stares at the painting and seems to feel some kind of uh, deep kind of communion with with the figure shown this this white king uh and Sally goes up so that the cave um we should have said it's not completely enclosed there is actually a sort of hole at the top like the oculus yes. um of the pantheon in rome 
yeah. which or, or or the bit in the James Bond villain's lair where they fire the missile. Exactly, off. exactly that bit. Um, and there's a, a, a bit of rock sticking out into this hole, effectively like a diving board, is how I imagined it. Um, and Sally goes up there and she starts walking along it. It's almost as though she's in a trance about to sort of walk off it and drop to her death in the bottomless pool below. Um, and, and Ben has to pull her back. So there's slightly weird things going on, yeah. um, which at the moment... Weird scenes inside the gold mine, first, the doors. From about the same period, actually. Right. So, so, so stick weird scenes inside the gold mine. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think we have weird scenes inside the gold mine later, actually. Um, Indeed. That's why I mentioned Yeah. Um, but at this point, so they found the cave, they found the paintings. Uh, they have not yet found the city. This is then when the extract that I read at the beginning happens. So just as they're about to give up for a second time, the moon rises and they realize, and I kind of get the principle of this. I don't, I couldn't really uh, explain it uh, in mathematical terms, but the very low light of the rising moon, it just catches the very, very faint remnants of the foundations of the city. And it can only be, it's almost like um, in, in The Hobbit, where you can only read the map by the light of a certain moon. Well, that sun. makes sense. I mean, the, the lower the sun or the moon goes in the sky, the longer the shadows become. Yeah, yeah. So this is, and the, the um, and, th and this explains why the aircraft at the beginning of the story was able to see it in its photographs, because the light was right and the aircraft was incredibly high. Whereas from any closer and with any more direct light, the, the things vanish. But the moon uh, reveals the um, the outlines of this lost city. And so that really gets them going. And suddenly we go from uh, Ben and Sally with a tent and a jeep to suddenly Lauren goes full on um, industrialist and flies in uh, diggers and experts and buildings and they build an airstrip and it suddenly goes into um, massive archaeological dig mode. I, I find that bit. I mean, air, these huge air-conditioned huts are brought in, and goodness knows what else. And you sort of thought, I don't probably thought, uh, way to destroy the site. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, Laren is as much as anything driven by the <clears throat> by the thought that where there's a mighty city, there must also be a great treasure, like the you know, like like yeah. kind of lost gold of the Incas or something. Yeah. You know, cities of gold in in, in the in the Amazon yeah. forest. You know. Jungle. Yeah, and they are they find they find bits of gold, um, which I, if I found it, I'd be pretty excited. Uh, what's interesting is that Ben is actually slightly underwhelmed because what he desperately wants to find is he wants to find proof to prove his theory that this was a city founded by Phoenicians, and he finds a few suggestive things, but nothing. But and it, they could all be dismissed as trade goods uh, or, um, or or later interpolations. Nothing that's really, you know, a slam dunk evidence that this was a Phoenician city. Yeah, I, I was funny about that. Too. And I must say, I got confused about how anybody could have got there because in the story, they don't come down the Nile. They come from the west. They, the Carthaginians sail from Carthage, which is on the, on the, on the north coast of, of, of Africa, through the Straits of Gibraltar, down the west coast of Africa, which is, which is he has said, and I, I haven't had time to check this out, they had already established in real life and established trading routes down into Africa. And then they come across using waterways which no longer exist. Again, I have no idea if this is the case. They, they, it must be the case because there are dried up lakes. They come, as it were, from the west all the way across into, into what is now Botswana. Uh, Botswana. Yeah. 
Yeah, and the, the, the conceit of the book, which actually, funnily enough, although it's 50 years old, speaks very much to kind of current concerns with climate change, is that there used to be a great lake there. Yes. Um, and and a and an estu- a river that debouched into the sea that was completely navigable by their by their biremes and triremes, and so they were able to come all the way deep into Botswana and build their city, build a sort of maritime city on the shore of this great lake. Which by the time we so this is in about two hundred BC ish. So, but by the time we get there in nineteen seventy one AD, the lake is completely gone. But that that salt pan is there. Yeah. I mean the, the the sight of it, and the and the salt pan I where there used to be a great lake, which there are lots of them all over the world. That that's real. So he's put it in a he's he's sort of placed it in a real place. Yeah. Um. But it's not. But it's an entirely imaginary. This is my point. Is is that the, the book does not the book is not making any claims about any place, any city, or ruins that actually exist. No, there's a bit of a sense that sort of a hint that Zimbabwe, Great Zimbabwe, is possibly modelled on this by people yes. who've seen it, or possibly they've built the kind of the prototype of it that then gets. But he doesn't labour that. And there's also there's also stuff about terraced fields, being great great gardens being created in, in terraced fields, um, sort of further to the north in, in what is now Zimbabwe. Which act as the kind of larder for the city. They, they're growing. They're growing all the food for the city. So, and 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 it's said that the terraces actually still exist to this day. Uh, that the, there are stone terraces on an actual mountain in Zimbabwe, but they are thought now to be the ruins of mining works rather than of agricultural terraces. It's not like, like you might find in China or indeed the Andes, where you have terraces built on mountain sides in order to grow rice or whatever maize or whatever yeah yeah but but again actually at the time that wilbur was writing people did think and perfectly reputable academics thought that that there were that there was evidence of the use of terracing on mountainsides in southern africa yeah as as means of growing food yeah and and the extraordinary thing is as i say they found they found the foundations of this city but there is not one single stone standing and and, and no rubble. No. Uh, they find a few columns with these what, um, vultures on top of them um, and some sun carvings. But that's, in terms of physical remnants, that's it. Uh, also a layer of ash um, that they excavate surrounding all of the foundations, which uh, sort of as with the, 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 the Troy excavations suggests that the whole thing was kind of burned to the ground. Yeah. Uh, I think and there's and there's one other thing which which is sort of burbling away in the background here. So I mentioned that that Ben worked had a colleague he works with um, called called Timothy Magaba, and Timothy, there there are two very distinctive things about him. The first is that he he has he has a sort of second sight. Um, he's been trained by by elders of his tribe. And and he has the capacity to fall into a trance and and sort of speak like an oracle, as it were. And and he is very very unwilling to go near that site because he regards it as being sort of profoundly dangerous. Yes, he, he has this phrase, this this sort of um, yes. oracular pronouncement that he says very early on, um, even before they've yeah, right at the beginning of the book. He says. Uh, an evil to be cleansed from the earth and the minds of men forever, and, that, and he's, he, that's his warning that, of, of, as to what waits in this place. Exactly. So that's that's think one thing first. The second thing about him is 
that he is ostrich toed, if that's the right phrase. That is the phrase Wilby uses, yeah. Which is to say that there is a cleft between his big toe and his other toes, which which kind of cuts deep into his foot, um, a bit like an, an an ostrich foot or those Japanese socks you sometimes see where there's a bit, bit for your yes. big toe and then the rest of your feet. Um, so so he has this strange cleft in in his foot, which is a sort of parallel to to and he also says that that he suggests to um to ben that ben also actually has a sort of spiritual side to me he's just he's just not explored it and that and the other thing we have that this that the um timothy's yeah. cleft foot is a sort of a comparable to ben's hunchback and it seems like they're kind of great companions and friends but again in a trope that will appear actually also in some of Wilbur's um, more contemporary works later on, when he's writing about the the kind of um, race conflicts in South Africa, um, Tim McGaber actually has a completely different side to his personality, and and there's this sort of strange subplot which is worth mentioning now, even though it doesn't necessarily have a huge impact on the first half of the book, but it emerges that Tim is a terrorist. Yes, it emerges in the most dramatic way when he comes to Ben's house in the middle of the night, says, right, let's jump on the plane to fly out to back to the, the dig. And then as soon as they get to the airport, he suddenly a bunch of his um, terrorist stroke freedom fighter buddies rock up with their machine pistols, yeah. uh, hijack the plane and fly off to, uh, I think they go to Rhodesia, don't they? Yeah, I mean, they, well, they go to North, they, they kind of go into the bush in what will be... Uh, yeah, into the bush, yeah. Um, and and And... Very interestingly, given the politics of Africa now, the terrorists are funded by China, yeah. which of course has basically conducted a form of sort of economic imperialism in Africa, about which people in the West seem to be weirdly, blithely ignorant of or indifferent to, in which in which essentially great swathes of Africa have been brought and the natural resources they contain have been brought under Chinese control. Um, essentially because they've been bought and paid for by China. Um, so th this is a sort of echo of what is going to happen in yeah. real life. Yeah. And in fact, I think historically, there were two main uh, Zimbabwean black liberation um, forces. Um, and one was backed by the Russians, uh, and then the other was backed by the Chinese. So, um, so again, this is very historic. Yeah, they were tribal. Mugabe is a Shona. And, and the That's other, right. um, Nkomo, I think it's called, was uh, Matabele. Yeah. And indeed, the very first thing that um, Mugabe did when he seized power was to go down to Matabele land and just kill as many people as they could find because to pay back for all the years in which the Matabele had been killing the Shona. Yeah. And in fact, which does tie into one of the kind of themes or points of the book, uh, which again, I think we can probably get to uh, as we see it plays out. I mentioned the fact that, and, and also the other thing that happens is that in the aftermath of his kidnap and his rescue, at first, um, ben is suspected of, of having um, collaborated with the terrorists and enabled them to to do all sorts of things. But there's then a scene in which he has befriended, Ben has befriended a Bushman called Chai or Shai, H-X-H-A-I. Yeah. Chai? Chai, I should think. I mean, it's probably like I or something, but... Uh... Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. But I'm not going to murder the, the poor Bushman. Exactly. Language, so. But in any event... This is also so he has befriended him, and then up in up in Zimbabwe, um, 
there's a side detour, the story takes a detour, and Ben is on a, in a military convoy which is ambushed by Mageba and his people, and Hai is killed. And this drives Ben into an absolute fury, and he literally picks up a machine gun, and because he's so strong in his arms and his legs, and he just charges the guerrillas, brandishing this machine gun in a, you know, in a Clint Eastwood style. I was, th- I was thinking Rambo, actually, that bit because he's got the, he's got the ammunition belts kind of draped over his shoulders. Rambo, that's a much better example. Yeah, and he's holding this absolutely massive gun. I, I, I was actually trying to think, of, as I said, Clint Eastwood was much too cool to do something like that. You're quite right; it's absolutely Rambo, and. This is a kind of a sidebar, but it's a sidebar that we need to note because it will play out later. Yes, yes. There, there are two bits, um, sort of slightly separate in the text. One is where Mageba hijacks the plane uh, and flies it out uh, into the bush. Uh, then he releases uh, Ben and lets him go back. And then slightly later, yeah, Ben and uh, Xai are uh, driving again through um, Rhodesia, as it is. Uh, and as you say, they get ambushed um, by Mageba again and, and manage to escape. So there, there are these two um, encounters, these two violent encounters. I have to say, for me, they were probably the least relevant parts of this first bit of the story. It's hard to see why they're happening. But we just need to park that thought. Yeah, because he had his reason. He had his reasons. And 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 I think we shouldn't say what those reasons are because that would be something of a spoiler yeah. at this point. So that's why it's just like hold that thought. There is a conflict yeah. between the central character and someone he has thought of as a friend, who is a, a black African, who with whom he then finds himself in conflict. Uh Meanwhile, the main action continues to happen at the excavation of the city. So again, there's sort of um, a series of of kind of uh, progress and setbacks, which I guess is probably quite like most archaeological digs. Um, and again, they've got to the point where they think they've found everything they can. They're packing up. They're ready to go. And then Ben looks at a photograph he's taken of the, the White King uh, painting. And there's this strange little smudged X on it. Um, And he suddenly realizes that, again, this this theme of light, angles of light picking out things that are invisible to the naked eye, he realizes that the camera flash has actually revealed an anomaly in the wall uh, and that the painting is actually painted on a false wall in this cave, which has bricked up a doorway. So as his best friend is, at first they think... actually crossed their mind they're just like going to drill through this priceless painting they decide not to do that luckily his friend Lauren uh, is a mining magnate so brings in his crack mining crew to drill around the painting and then into the chamber beyond and at this point um, Ben is very keen to warn everyone about the dangers of something called cryptococcus neuromykes yes which is the a cur- the curse of Tutankhamun which is indeed the curse of Tutankhamun um and he um it's a, it's a it's a it's a microscopic spore it's a fungal spore it's a fungal spore that you that you find in areas that have been sort of closed up for a long time like a pharaoh's tomb or indeed a lost city in africa um and the uh so next time you discover a lost city folks yeah be careful watch out for the fungal spore 
because it has it's, it's, a, it's an incredibly powerful and indeed fatal hallucinogenic. First, you have an extraordinarily bad trip, and then you're in very severe danger of popping your clogs. Yeah, the way the way Ben describes it is um, you, the uh, spores create extensive lesions of the lung tissue with hemorrhage, high temperature, and rapidly painful breathing. Uh, then the fungal colonies begin generating wastes, uh, which are absorbed into the blood and carried to the brain and the central nervous system, which act as very virulent neurotoxin and induce hallucination, inflammation of the meninges, severe brain malfunction, similar to the effects of lysergic acid or mescaline. As I say, uh, it's a very, very bad trip. And 75% of people who get this die. So... As a reader, you're thinking, there is a very good reason I'm being given this information. Um, but it's not immediately apparent because they drill through into the chamber, the hidden chamber behind the painting. And uh, Ben does a, a quick test for, for this horrible fungus. And there, it is not present. Well, they wear respirators too, then. They wear respirators, yeah. yeah. But, but then Ben does a quick test. And happy days, there is none of this horrible fungus in the hidden chamber. So they're good. They're good. Uh, so false alarm, no need to worry about the killer psychedelic fungus. <laughs> so so they've come into this second chamber and uh, it's filled with vases, effectively, which in turn turned out to be filled with leather uh, scrolls, I guess, um, like, like um, vellum, filled with uh, Phoenician writing. Yes. And so, so now Ben's theory has been proved correct because here in you know in black and white carefully preserved are these jars which as you say make it clear beyond doubt and they describe and they're, they're very the first jars they find are very kind of precise accountants delineations of exactly all the various um, goods that are flowing to and fro in and out of the city and it's it's very very detailed so they have an absolutely indisputable um, clear picture of what's been going on this is enough to make ben kind of a hero of the architectural world and and to ha have him lauded um, at the royal geographical society in london however what they don't have yet is the thing that Lauren, capitalist, still wants, which is gold. And they do actually find it. The first form in which they find it is in golden scrolls. They, been, they've, they've found these jars behind the picture, as Tom was saying. And, and one of the sort of running things in the, in, the, in the book, and I think this is an example of a, a writer who isn't yet entirely fully developed is is you keep on being told the characters oh well i just missed something there if only i'd spotted this and this happens again and again and again and one of the occasions is is that is that is that he misses first time around the fact that as well as all the scrolls that, that are just vellum and, and contain lots of writing on them they get in they get in a, a, an archaeologist from england who's a sort of expert in Phoenician writing to decode them but as well as that there's another smaller set of incredibly heavy jars. And when these jars are opened, there are, a, there are scrolls written on incredibly finely beaten gold. So they're permanent. I mean, it's actually a brilliant idea that if you wanted to store a record forever, you would write it onto gold, which doesn't corrode and doesn't corrupt in any way. And here they find something much richer, 
not just in gold, but in, in kind of literary terms. And they are the poems and songs of someone writing. Uh, okay, now another name is hard to pronounce, Hoy, H-U-Y. Yeah, Hoy. Who is the kind of close advisor to high priest and close advisor to the king of this city. And, and he's also a wonderful poet and songwriter. Um, and he's also a hunchback. Yes, it transpires. So Ben identifies with him very, very strongly. Yes. And the other thing Ben's identifying with very strongly is in this hall, they find an axe, this massive, yes. massive double-bladed axe, uh, and they polish it up and it's in pristine condition. And when Ben picks it up again, he feels some kind of ancient, mysterious out-of-body experience kind of going through him. And he almost takes someone's head off because he's so uh, entranced by the power of attacks. Yeah, so Lauren, Lauren has it when he sees the king. Uh, Sally has it gazing down at the pool. Ben has it picking up the axe. And these, this is all a bit like the terrorist. Park that thought because it's going to be relevant. And, and thus far, I mean, thinking, I'm thinking about it now, although it's completely gripping and works perfectly well in its own right, yeah. If all that this story was, was this bit, and it ends this section of the book, they do find the treasure. Yeah, so they find a second hidden door. And it has to be said, Wilbur in uh, On Leopard Rock says very much that he was thinking of um, H. Ryder Haggard when he wrote his yes. book. And I think the white the white king, very sort of reminiscent of, of Aisha, she in yes. she. And actually, in King Solomon's minds, uh, at the end of that, they go into the caves. And first of all, they find the kind of beautiful outer cave. Um, it's with stalactites in King Solomon's minds. It's with, with, with the, the, the lake here. And then they go in. And what do they find? They find the tomb of the kings and they find the treasury uh, in King Solomon's minds. And here, behind a hidden door that's sort of carved into the rock. And here again... Um, at the back of the Hall of Records, the one where they found all the, the vellum scrolls, the golden scrolls, there is another hidden door, uh, which if you push in the right place, opens on a mysterious pivot. Which Laren has a sort of intuitive sense of where that right, right place yes, is. Yes, he just sort of reaches and feels it instinctively, doesn't he? Um, yeah. And behind this door, as you say, are the two final discoveries that they have to make. One is the treasury. Um, I don't think we should say what the second one is. Should we say what the second one is? Uh, Spoiler alert. I, I think we should say what the second one is. Um, I, because the, and the second one is, is the tombs of the kings. Um, okay. Uh, the, the, the 47 kings of, um, of, of Opet. And, and, okay, and I think also, and what you find, what he finds there is, is right at the back of that, not properly buried, are the bodies of a kind of reddish blonde haired king and a darker haired figure kneeling above the king who's impaled himself on his own sword. And Ben realizes that these must be Lanon, who is, the, who I think they already, he already knows his name, doesn't he, the King Lanon? Yeah, they put it from the scrolls, yeah. And his faithful priest and companion, Hoy. And there, although this is not quite the last thing that happens, but really would be quite a, a spoiler alert to say what the absolutely last thing that happens in this section of the book is. But fundamentally, the book ends with the discovery of these two figures in their tomb who've been there. If that was all there was, you've, you know, you've got a sort of 300-page book, which is quite dramatic, 
Yes. And has a twist that obviously I've not, I've been careful not to reveal what it is at the end. And it would be perfectly serviceable. What makes the this sunbird as a whole incredible is this is only half the book. And it's when you read the second half of the book that the whole thing plays out in full. And that you that, that is what makes this A, an ex, a great read in its own right, but yeah. B, a com, I mean, just in all sorts of ways, a book that is going to have echoes through stuff that Wilbur writes for the next 30 years. So they, they, found, they, they found pretty much everything the city has to reveal. And it seems as though everything's the happy ending. And then Ben wakes up in the middle of the night and he is absolutely out of his head. He's convinced he's being attacked. He's convinced everything is on fire. And he realizes that the evil Cryptococcus neuromyces, um, the, the curse of Tutankhamun, although they tested the first chamber they discovered, they never tested the treasury and the tomb of the kings. And this terrible, powerful, hallucinogenic, 75% fatal fungus is as he, you know, in, the mo in that moment, is growing in his lungs and feeding poisons into his brain. Okay. And there we'll leave it. And on that bombshell, on a tightrope, suspended above a chasm, mm -hmm. we'll leave it and come back next time to find out both what happens at the very, very end of part one of The Sunbird and then what happens in the whole of part two. Yes. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Tom Harper. And it's goodbye from me, Diana Thomas. That Wilbur Smith Show is produced by Christopher Wynne. Music by Dewey DeLay. Executive producer, Niso Smith.